hello, podcasties. This is your podcaster, your blogger, Anne Althouse. It's Friday, Friday the 13th. Is anything unlucky happening to you? Uh, is the presidential election over? I heard that all the states have been called so far. <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I can avoid talking much about the election. I've got something about it. But I'm going to start by talking about... Um, Elon Musk. We talked about Elon Musk yesterday. Why am I talking about him again this morning? I guess it's because the Washington Post had an article, Elon Musk with cold symptoms says his COVID-19 tests are inconclusive. And I start off with a quote from Musk. Something extremely bogus is going on, was tested for COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative, two came back positive. Same machine, same test, same nurse. And the article says, when one follower asked if false tests could be driving the national surge in cases, Musk replied, if it's happening to me, it's happening to others. When another follower suggested that revenues from tests are likely not bogus and very consistent, Musk replied, exactly. No, notice how, so this is me, notice how that's kind of suggesting a conspiracy theory that people are profiting from the tests. They're making a lot of money giving those tests. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of scam going on here, and Musk is uh, adding to that. WAPO goes on to say that Musk has been a coronavirus skeptic since last March when he tweeted, the coronavirus pan panic is dumb. The panic is dumb. That doesn't mean he thinks the disease itself isn't serious. This reminds me of the way President Trump was treated at the end of February when I was critical of headlines like Trump rallies his base to treat coronavirus as a hoax. That was, as I said at the time, a hoax hoax. He didn't say coronavirus was a hoax. He said that something about the way it's being treated in the press, the way it's being used is a hoax. And obviously it was used to uh, win the, uh, to make him lose the election. So there's a lot of room for all kinds of ideas of why a fake version of the disease is what's being presented to us. Not that there isn't a real disease there, but that something about it, some, the coronavirus panic is dumb or so forth. The, the Washington Post article attributes what he calls, uh, what it calls his fury to his financial interests. So notice he brought up the fina financial interests of the people who are doing the tests and Washington Post brought up his financial interest. He, he was forced to shutter a California Tesla factory uh, he unleashed a heated rant at the time in a uh, an earnings call and said the government should give people back their goddamn freedom. And he said to say that they cannot leave their house and they will be arrested if they do. This is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not freedom. And he's called the lockdowns fundamentally a violation of the Constitution. Was there really anywhere where they said people would be arrested if they left their house? Haven't we always been able to leave our house and at least go for a walk, a socially distanced walk? I don't remember any time when we were told, don't leave your house. And then 
to continue on this theme of the pandemic, we have a speech that Samuel Alito gave to the Federalist Society at their national convention. This was all done over the internet, so that's why we have a video of a speech that we would not normally get. But he said the pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. The pandemic, uh, we've never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those experienced for most of 2020, he said. He said, uh, think of all the live events that would otherwise be protected by the right to freedom of speech, live speeches, conferences, lectures, meetings. Think of worship services, churches closed on Easter Sunday, synagogues closed for Passover on Yom Kippur War. Uh, that was a little mistranscribed, I'm seeing. He said, think about access to the courts or the constitutional right to a speedy trial. The COVID crisis has served as a sort of constitutional stress test. And in doing so, it has highlighted disturbing trends that were already present before the virus struck. And he, I, I won't read you all of this, but he talked about the lawmaking, the dominance of lawmaking by executive fiat rather than legislation the vision of early 20th century progressives and the New Dealers of the 1930s was the policymaking would shift from narrow-minded elected legislators to an elite group of appointed experts. In a word, the policymaking would become more scientific. That dream has been realized to a large extent. Every year, administrative agencies acting under broad delegations of authority churn out huge volumes of regulations that dwarfs the statutes enacted by the people's elected representatives. And what have we seen in the pandemic sweeping restrictions imposed for the most part under statutes that confer enormous executive discretion? And he talks about the uh, way that constitutional rights are being threatened by the um, by the pandemic. He talks about religious freedom rights, and he talks about, um, let's see, oh, there's so much here, I'm trying not to copy it all, freedom of speech and Second Amendment rights he talks about in some detail. So you get to see rights that maybe were already threatened getting more threatened because of the coronavirus, so maybe rights that were less well defended on one side, I would say the liberal side, gun rights, religion rights, and freedom of speech are all kind of losing ground, I think, among liberals. And then you put the coronavirus on top of that, and it adds weight to the side that is diminishing those rights. Anyway, there's a lot there, and maybe I should parse through the whole thing and talk about it piece by piece, but I'm not going to do that. I finally had a dream about Joe Biden. Have you ever had a dream about Joe Biden? I hadn't. Not that my dreams are populated by celebrities. In the dream, Joe was giving a speech on television and he became completely incoherent. But he struggled to go on and it got horrifically bad. He had a panicked, confused look on his face and he seemed to want to believe that if he just kept going, it would straighten out well enough and the public would accept it as we usually do. 
but it only got worse and worse. Jill was sitting beside him, projecting the mes message that this was all just fine, nothing to see here, and then bit by bit letting it show that she knew this was a very real and obvious problem, and we were seeing the complete collapse of her husband. Yeah, that may sound like some things that we've actually seen with her sitting beside him, I think particularly of the time he seemed to be referring to President Trump as George, although he, she, he might have been referring to George Lopez, who he was talking to, but it seemed like he started to try to remember the president's name and start to say George, and Jill was sitting next to him, and you could see her uh, kind of conflicted between, do I sit there and look like everything's just right? Or do I try to help? Or am I just freaked out because this is really going to be bad? Anyway, I find Jill Biden rather interesting. Okay, the next post is um, Gerbangli Bertie Mukhamadov gave Vladimir Putin an alibi. I like that title because... What a wild name the leader of Turkmenistan has. Gerbangli, Bertie Mukhamadov. And then the word alibi that you see there gave Putin an alibi, A-L-A-B-I. That is a type of dog that they have in Turkmenistan. And now there's a 19-foot statue of a golden alibi at the center of a big traffic circle in Ashgabat, Ashgabat being the capital of Turkmenistan. And I give you some video and some pictures, and you can see there's this 19-foot-tall golden alibi dog right in the middle of a traffic circle in the town of Ashgabat. And then the dog is up on a pretty high plinth, so the total height is 70 feet, but that's a lot to do for a dog. I like that there's a homophone for alibi, as in, big girls don't cry, that's just an alibi. That's where I first learned the word alibi was when the song by the Four Seasons, Big Girls Don't Cry, came out. I don't think they really use it right, because an alibi should be specifically the excuse that you were in another place, and uh, the, the, that doesn't really fit the song alibi. Do you ever, do you remember the actual place where you learned particular words? I was saying just the other day when I first learned the word taciturn, I first learned the word taciturn when um, someone I knew called my father taciturn. And alibi, definitely know that I learned that as it came up in that Four Seasons song. And I also remember learning the word collateral from uh, that uh, Bob Dylan song, uh, the one where, where he's uh, coming to America and uh, crosses paths with Christopher Columbus and he goes into a bank at one point for a loan and the line is, they ask me for some collateral and I pulled down my pants. Now, you know, understanding words from context, you know, it can be challenging at times. But anyway, that's where I first learned the word collateral. That's where I first learned the word alibi. But the alibi in question in this post is spelled somewhat differently. A-L-A-B-A-I. Oh! That was the timer for 
I'm, I'm filling the bathtub. Speaking of uh, <laughs> random pleasures, golden statues, there's no golden bathtub. Why am I thinking of a golden bathtub? That must have some context. Talking about Bob Dylan pulling down his pants, talking about uh, Vlad Vladimir Putin and the and and uh, Bertie Muhammadov's dog. And I want to say some more about this dog. And I want to talk about colossal statues in general. But that little chime that you just heard is, as I said in an earlier podcast, that's the 15 minute mark that means that I have successfully filled up the bathtub and I need to go take a bath and I'll be right back. Oh, okay, I'm back. So we were talking about the dog. We've been talking about bad public monuments lately. So I must say I didn't think the golden dog in Turkmenistan was that bad. Maybe we'd do better here in the West with dog statues instead of the usual human beings and alternatively abstractions. But the the antagonism toward public art is so great in the United States these days that a dog statue would probably be regarded as a monument to white supremacy and torn down by some high-minded citizens. Right? I mean, I'm thinking, get rid of all of the heroes, the human heroes. They're all subject to criticism. They could be taken down. Uh, Abstractions. I have a problem with abstractions, but maybe things that had more to do with nature, the non-human part of nature. How about dogs? Doesn't everyone love dogs? No, no. For some people, a dog would, especially a German Shepherd, something like that, would people would think of a police dog and the way dogs have been used against uh, people, specifically civil rights uh, marchers, dogs. So I think there's a racial negative um, association with dogs so that a dog statue would not be the solution to our statue problem here in the United States. Personally, as you know, I said it yesterday, just get rid of the statues. Don't do statues. Give up this idea that when you build a building, you have to put whatever percent of the money you've spent on that building into some sort of sculpture for your plaza or whatever. And I looked up more about Ashgabat. I was wondering about um, Turkmenistan. And I found a 2018 article in The Guardian inside Ashgabat, the flashy but empty city of the dead. And I found out through the article, it's called the city of the dead because nobody's there. You know, it's sort of like North Korea. They build up the city, but the people are really very poor. So there's all this wealth on display in this particular part. And that's it. And nobody's really using it. Filmmaker and dark tourist. Dark tourist means that he goes to the dark tour, the dark spots on the globe like North Korea. So some people make a list of places to go and they're these difficult places. I would stay out of them. Most people would stay out of them, but he goes in there as part of a a film show he does. David Farrier visited Turkmenistan's newly built capital designed to cope with anything as long as it's pre-planned. And here's a quote from the article. The capital city of Turkmenistan is blisteringly dry and hot, dumped in the middle of a desert. It also holds the record for the highest density of buildings made from white marble, which bounce the sun right back into your face, blinding you. 
Somehow, Turkmenistan had negotiated to host the Asian Indoor Martial, Ga Martial Arts Games, an official Olympic event for which it constructed a $5 billion village. Huge stadiums, a monorail system, indoor and outdoor sports arenas, and giant sprawling highways were surrounded by brand new hotels, apartments, and malls. I also read in that article something that surprised me, which is that Turkmenistan has the world's fourth largest natural gas reserves, and that's more than the United States. Is that true? I don't know. I thought we had the most, but uh, apparently there's a lot elsewhere. And I put up a picture, I can't show you the picture in a podcast, but of the wedding palace there. And it's a just wild, crazy building with this globe centered within stars. And, and it's a, you know, monumental-sized globe, such that there's a giant wedding room inside, inside the globe. So you can go in there, get up into the globe, and you can um, get married if you got to get married in Turkmenistan. Now, speaking of very large statues of colossi, I started looking at um, the Wikipedia article, The World's Tallest Statues, because I wondered, how, how monumental is this dog? I was commenting down in the comments of my own post and I referred to the dog as a colossus. We were comparing it to some other dog statues, like I was looking at the Balto statue in Central Park in New York City, and there's something in Japan that someone mentioned. So there are dog statues, but are they this big? They're more like hmm, about the size of a dog or maybe twice the size of a dog. But um, the, the um, Turkmenistan, dog statue is 19 feet tall. That's tall for a dog, but is that tall as a colossus when we look at the colossi of the world? So I was reading this Wikipedia article listing the tallest statues in the world, and the tallest one is the Statue of Unity. Had you ever heard of this? Statue of Unity, I'm reading from Wikipedia, is a colossal statue of Indian statesman and independent activist Vallabhai Patel, who lived from 1875 to 1950, who was the first deputy prime minister and home minister of independent India and an adherent of Mahatma Gandhi during the nonviolent Indian independence movement. Highly respected for his leadership, uh, uniting 562 princely states of India uh, with a major part of the former British Raj to form the single union of India. Uh, this statue is 597 feet tall. <laughs> it's just a statue of a man. He's just standing there. So it's, it, it's just out of respect for this person. It's the largest statue in the world. And it's number one on the list. It's just a, a man, a leader, that's highly respected in India. For good reason. But... Uh, why would you make a, a statue of the man? Uh, now, I, I found this graphic that I thought was pretty interesting showing the relative sizes of various statues, the Statue of Unity and the um, Spring Temple Buddha, which is five, uh, 
520 feet tall. Some of that is pedestal. And the Statue of Liberty is, um, well, this is including the pedestal. So. But anyway, if you look at the Statue of Unity and the Spring Temple Buddha, and then you look at the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty is much smaller. And uh, the Christ the Redeemer statue in in uh, Brazil is only about half as tall as that. It's very interesting to see these statues compared and to see their silhouettes on a graph. But uh, obviously, and then um, it, it also shows Michelangelo's David as a tiny little little dash at the bottom of that that graph. Michelangelo's David is um, 17 feet tall. So the dog, the dog, this, if you've ever seen Michelangelo's David and you know about how big that is, that's about how big the Turkmenistan dog is. Anyway, the, the statue of David doesn't get on the Wikipedia list of the tallest statues in the world. The standard they used for that for that list was whether they were as tall as the Statue of Rhodes, which is believed to be 30 meters tall. So you'd have to have a cutoff point at some point on the list. There are a lot of big statues, and the Statue of David looks pretty big if you go check that out. Uh, but it's is it a colossus? Probably not. And is the as far as dog statues go, I don't know. Maybe maybe the Turkmenistan dog is the largest dog statue in the world. There's no dog statue on the Wikipedia list of tallest statues in the world, which had a cutoff point. You had to be at least 30 meters tall to be on that list. Anyway, uh, the dog is in the the dog. 30 meters is 98 feet tall, in case you're wondering, doing the math for you. You had to be at least 98 feet tall to get on the tallest statues list. So the Turkmenistan dog, however big, is too small. Nearly all the statues on that list depict human beings or deities that look human. Like there's Ganesha, the elephant-headed India, Indian uh, god, Hindu god, and he obviously has an elephant head, but it's it's a human body, so that was on the list. If you count that, that's the largest animal statue. But for the uh, the tallest statue that doesn't have a human or part human form is the merlion that's in Singapore. Merlion is part uh, lion, lion on top, and uh, mermaid bottom, mermen, merlion, mer. So lion of the mer of the sea. It's half lion and basically half fish. It's the mermaid of lions. Anyway, there's a big merlion in the harbor in Singapore. And if you look at that graph, I said, look how shrimpy the Statue of Liberty and Christ the Redeemer look just juxtaposed to the Statue of Unity and the Spring Temple Buddha. But in the real world, these statues are not near any other statues. You don't have the Statue of Liberty next to the Statue of Unity, so that it makes you say, whoa, the Statue of Unity is so big because it's so much bigger. Look how little the Statue of Liberty looks. These statues are all out by themselves. And if you go to see them, you're not, you're not comparing them to anything else. They're just alone in the landscape. And the landscape could be very capacious. 
Does this landscape make me look small? Does this landscape make me look big? Have you ever gone to a very grand landscape and felt like these mountains are making me look tiny? Or do you feel big when you're around mountains? You go stand on a mountain, maybe you'll feel big. Have a tall view. How about standing on a very flat prairie? That can make you feel small. The, you're most likely to feel, I like to feel human-sized. You know, if you think about it, you ever meditate on this? If you really think about it, you can think about how tiny you are, how small you are, because you think of things bigger than yourself and just get into the mindset of imagining, I'm really, really very small. But you can do the reverse. You can picture yourself really big. You just think of the things that are really small, like ants and atoms and so forth. Uh, then you can, you can get a, you can get a visualization of your giantness. Oh, how dare somebody try to call me. Hate that. Anyway, you can feel very large. You can feel very small. Uh, where was I going with this? Oh, I was going to say that phone call often almost uh, got me. But what I wanted to say was the best thing to feel is middle, like that you're just the right size, that there are things going infinitely smaller than you, things going infinitely larger than you, and you're right where you are. You're right where you should be. It really isn't helpful to think other things. Maybe sometimes it is, but for the most part, the best scale is human scale. Now, something is making countries or uh, groups that fund art want to build some really large things. Apparently, especially in Asia, most of the, these colossi are in Asia for some reason. What, what makes a country want to put up a figure of, of a respected leader and make him, uh, you know, five, you know, 58 meters tall. So that's like 200 feet tall, something like that. Imagine if uh, we wanted to put up a, a statue of uh, George Washington or Barack Obama and make them 200 feet tall. Why would we do that? What would we be expressing? I mean, it makes the person feel small. The person should feel right-sized, and the world around the person should not make you feel puny or oversized. It should make you feel like you're the right size. So it is best to build environments for people that are human scale, that don't dwarf us or make us feel clumsily uh, crushed, like a, inside of an airplane makes you feel oversized. Uh, and some cities just loom over you and feel too big. But there's a such thing as human scale, and I think that's, that's what's desirable. So I'm not a fan of these colossi. I haven't visited too many colossi, and I don't know if I want to. I've gazed at the Statue of Liberty thousands of times. For, for a year, I had an apartment that looked out on the Statue of Liberty, so I saw that all the time. But I didn't care about taking the boat up to the island to get close to it and experience my tininess in contrast to the thing. I did it once to go along with some family members who wanted to go out there. Without that, I would have never gone out there. I would have just looked at it from the distance. I like seeing the you know, the sunset in the background. I was over in Brooklyn looking out at it, so I saw the western sky behind it, and I could look out and see every sunset with the Statue of Liberty in it, just like 
these days I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and I get a view of, I go out to see the sunrise. I get a view of the sunrise because my view is looking east and the state capitol happens to be there. Now, I've been to the state capitol, Wisconsin capitol, many times, and it's actually pretty big and it's kind of fun to go in there and look up at the dome and see how big it is. But when you go to look at the sunrise from where I am, it's a tiny little thing. It's like the size of a, uh, you know, a Monopoly hotel over there on the distant shore. It's tiny. It's tiny. And the sky, the grand natural phenomenon of the sun is, is much bigger. Of course, the sun in reality is so much larger than the little sun I see coming up over the horizon, which is seems like about the size of a marble at most, depending on how you think about it, depending on how close you're holding that marble to your face. It's like a marble held at arm's length the sun that I see on the opposite shore. But if I were to hold that marble right up to my eye, that would be much larger than the sun. In my view, in my viewpoint. Anyway, I just want to say I'm resistant, resistant to exaggerated size. I think the artistic move of just making something big is not a good move. Make it beautiful. Put beauty above bigness. Just going big is bad. And, you know, if you make something that's bad and it's big, it's more of an eyesore. I was saying yesterday that I think uh, most public sculptures are just eyesores. It would be better not to have anything at all. Bigness as goodness, I reject. You know what we were talking about in the car, and I, 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 this is sort of a touchy subject, but do you, do you ever worry that you yourself are an eyesore? What if you look awful? Do you worry? Oh, no, people have to see. But art is different because you don't need the art at all. People need to exist, and people look... Mm, some people could try harder to look a little better, but for the most part, we look the way we look, and we deserve our space. That's the human-scale idea. Whatever space we take up, we own that space because we're a human being in the world. Um, so I don't think you need to really worry too much about making yourself an eyesore. People, people like to, uh, people used to say, I look a fright. I look a fright. A fright would be a frightening thing, but you don't hear that kind of statement that much anymore. And people don't comment on each other's looks very much anymore. Used to be much more of that. People are more accepting now, I think, aren't they? And yet when I look online, I see women putting on so much makeup and getting all of this plastic surgery and so on and doing elaborate hairstyles. It seems like they're trying way harder than anybody ever used to, to look good. But, but that's just a show for the camera, isn't it? That's like going to the opera. When you go to the opera, the makeup and hair and costumes are fantastic. They're so much better than what anyone could do in real life in normal life as opposed to life on stage. You see them at a distance. You see them like the, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty that's the size of a Monopoly hotel or the state capitol the size of a Monopoly hotel. The Statue of Liberty that's the size of a, of a, well, it'd be a little, little tiny figure. Anyway, let's see. Let's see what else we have here. I've been talking about art and big and small for a long time, but let's see what we've got that I haven't gotten to yet. Well, one thing is that Megan McCain Googled, I mean, uh, tweeted, in light of tonight's news, and tonight's news last night, she's referring to, was that 
the state of Arizona has been called for Joe Biden. So she said, sorry, I had to. The meme is too funny. And it's just a picture of her father, John McCain, with the words on it, I like people who don't lose Arizona. Right, so that's a, that's a reference to the old Trump line. I like soldiers that don't get taken captive or whatever. It was a terrible, terrible taste remark by Trump. So, but uh, humor, you know, I've said it before, not all humor is good, but it's good to have a sense of humor. And I am basically supportive of people making jokes, even though a lot of the jokes are bad. I think Trump's old joke was bad. I think this meme is bad, but I titled the post. So humor has not died. I question whether it's too funny. She said, I have to show you this because it's too funny. Well, if it's too funny, why don't you spare us? It's too funny. Oh, but she means it in this sort of old-fashioned, girlish way of saying, oh, you're too kind. <laughs> too, meaning uh, delightfully so. I question whether it's too funny, but who cares? At least we're not too uptight to make jokes. Well, at least only if they're anti-Trump. I think you get a little more leeway, make a lot more leeway making jokes if they're anti-Trump. But the thing about Trump is he took the um, he he took the freedom for himself to be able to make jokes, to be edgy, in a humorous way, and nobody else did that. In fact, I talked about my dream about Biden, but I once had a dream about Trump. It was very early on when he was running for the nomination. I had no feeling that I personally liked him, but I had a dream about him in which I hugged him and thanked him. And I was thanking him for the freedom that he brought to all of us because of the freedom that he took for himself. You know, by being free, by acting out your freedom instead of declining to use the freedom that you have, by exercising your freedom, you're helping other people be free. You're, you're doing it for yourself. You're taking freedom for yourself. But by being an example, especially a conspicuous example of the exercise of freedom, it makes it more possible, more um, uh, likely that we will be free, that we'll exercise freedom. You showed me how. That, that was something I actively, th I felt so moved to thank him for that in my dream. I don't know what I think of all of that now. What did he get for it all? Was it worth it? Now, suddenly everyone's interested in Leda Powell Drake, when people in Lincoln, Nebraska, have watched her interview celebrities for years. She's gone big because of this tweet, collecting some of her sublime moments. And I guess you have to go over to the blog, but this is just some local news lady that was very cheeky in her interviews of various celebrities that came through town. And I, and I, New York Magazine's Vulture had an interview with her. I have some excerpts from that, so I'll read that. The interviewer at Vulture says, based on the interviews I've seen so far, most of the stars seem more than happy to see you, even if your questions weren't all softballs. And she said, I didn't ask them any of the kinds of questions that everybody else did. And maybe that's why they were so receptive and responsive, because at least it was very refreshing. And then she's asked, 
So is it fair to say you didn't care about being seen as rude or overly frank when talking to celebrities? I'm wondering if anybody ever had a negative reaction. And she said, almost everybody was very receptive. They really were. I really had fun with these people. I really did. Some got very tired, you know, toward the end of the day, but I think they perked up when I came up. And she was asked, in some of the interviews in the Supercut, a few of the male actors got a little flirty with you. And she said, oh, a couple of guys, you know, would call me later and would want me to go to dinner, but I was busy. If they made a suggestion or something, I just laughed it off. I was serious about it, but I pretended not to be. You know about Johnny Carson, right? Yes, indeed. He's from Nebraska. All right. Okay. Here's the thing about Johnny Carson. Johnny graduated from the University of Nebraska. Well, I would go to New York for the fashion shows and I would do interviews with people and Johnny was on the schedule. He didn't know me. Everybody who attends these things, this is fashion. All the women writers from around the United States, all the male writers, everybody was there. And they were all dressed to the nines. I came in wearing one of my outfits. It's a striped pantsuit. It was ludicrous. It was just bright red, bright white. Johnny looked at some of the people and he says, who's that person? Back there, way in the back. And they just told him, oh, that's Leda of London. And he just shouted, what's that Leda, that Leda of L Lincoln? Did I say London? And they just told him, oh, that's Leda of Lincoln. And he just shouted, where's that Leda, that Leda of Lincoln? I've been called Leda of Lincoln ever since. He said, what the heck kind of an outfit was that? I said, Johnny, when you were in Lincoln, you used to dress like that. And he said, yeah, that's why I left. And she's asked, do you keep up with a lot of TV and film now? And she says, I'm a reader. I might tune into CNN, but I can't stand the commercials. I hate to see what's happened to television. It's just crap. Now, I see there was an opinion in the case against Harvard about race-conscious admissions. A two-judge panel, this is a quote from the Washington Post, of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit found that Harvard's race-conscious admissions process does not violate civil rights law when the university selects an incoming undergraduate class. The plaintiff alleged that Harvard intentionally discriminated against Asian Americans in ways that benefited applications, applicants from other groups seeking entry to one of the world's most competitive universities. The university says it adheres to Supreme Court rulings over decades that have allowed the use of race within certain limits. Now, this is me speaking. Uh, some people criticized me in the comments for not going into more detail about this case, but I think that the Court of Appeals decision isn't really that interesting because they're stuck with the law as it was stated by previous Supreme Court cases, and they could have pushed the envelope, but I'm not surprised that they didn't. I do think the Supreme Court will probably review this and uh, take very seriously the problem of a racial minority that is discriminated against. The, uh, it's, it's one thing to see that the majority, the white applicants, are losing out as the, an effort is made to bring diversity to the student body, but to see Asian students, Asian American students, uh, discriminated against, that might uh, take it in a different direction. But I'm not surprised that the Court of Appeals didn't do anything with this itself. 
didn't try to attract attention from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court obviously can see this case and will take it if it wants to. I think the trial level decision was more important, really, because fact-finding matters. But as far as the appellate review of the district court, I tend to think it was to be expected that the court would do what it did. The Washington Post article goes on to speak about the Supreme Court. Quote, the court's new 6-3 to three conservative majority cemented with the recent appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett to Ginsburg's seat could view the long-running controversy over race-conscious admissions in a new light. Several states bar public universities from considering race. California voters on November 3rd rejected a ballot measure that would have repealed a ban on the use of race in public universities in admissions and other situations. But the politics of the issue are complex, as this year's demonstrations for social and racial justice have shown the power of the Black Lives Movement, close quote. Uh, Notice after all that attention to how Amy Coney Barrett would not Uh, would just decide according to the law and would not let political considerations affect her decision. That's what they all, all the nominees say these days when they go up for confirmation. And yet the Washington Post just breezily takes it in stride that the Supreme Court would be affected by the, uh, the demonstrations, the, the, uh, the power of the Black Lives Matter movement. The power, maybe the violence or just the protests. Is that supposed to change the Supreme Court? Well, maybe maybe it does. Um, I think it's very interesting that California rejected the ballot measure that years ago it adopted a ballot measure that banned the use of race in admissions. And it's been banned for many years in California. And there was a ballot measure this year to repeal the ban. And it lost. It lost in California. So what does that say? Uh, California's done all right. Is, is it really so bad in California? I think that that might might influence the court. You know, what would happen if we couldn't if we couldn't do this? How would admissions be done if we were told we couldn't do it? Well, then there would be litigation about whether they were doing what they couldn't do if it were banned. Anyway, we'll see what happens. That will become much more interesting if the court takes the case as I tend to think it will. Now I just have one more piece and this is the one that's about Trump. And I just quoted from a Maggie Haberman article in the New York Times. The article is called Trump Floats Improbable Survival Scenarios as He Ponders His Future. There is no grand strategy. President Trump is simply trying to survive from one news cycle to the next. Now, I don't know what her sources are, how well she's really stating this. I simply don't know. I put it out there for discussion purposes. Maybe I'll try to discuss a few items of it as I I read it, but... I think it's interesting material. I don't. Some people wonder, why, Altos, do you still read the New York Times? Why do you read the Washington Post and the New York Times? That's what I do on this, in this blog, on this podcast. I read mainstream media, and I comment on it. And sometimes I don't comment on it. Sometimes I choose what to put out there. And you might have to infer what you might think I think, or better yet, think for yourself, and you write something. That's the value of the blog, is that it... Um, it, it uh, gives you a place to speak. I like to do it. And, uh, you know, if I don't say much about it, you can say whatever you want in the comments. So here's Maggie Haberman's article in the New York Times. He knows it's over, one advisor said, but instead of conceding, they said, he's floating one improbable scenario after another for staying in office while he contemplates 
his uncertain post-presidency future. There's no grand strategy at play, according to interviews with a half dozen advisors and people close to the president. Mr. Trump is simply trying to survive from one news cycle to the next, seeing how far he can push his case against his defeat and ensure the continued support of his Republican base. By dominating the story of his exit from the White House, he hopes to keep his millions of supporters energized and engaged for whatever comes next. As a next step, Mr. Trump is talking seriously about announcing that he's planning to run again in 2024, aware that whether he actually does it or not, it will freeze an already crowded field of possible Republican candidates. His mood is often bleak, advisors say, though he is not raising his voice in anger. Despite the impression left by his tweets, which are often in capital letters, advisors have nudged the president to stop talking about fraud because that has legal implications that his team has not been able to back up. So Mr. Trump has taken to pronouncing the election rigged. So I don't know what's going on there. Trump is uh, gradually adjusting to his new position. It looks like the law firm he was using in Pennsylvania has withdrawn. It looks like some decisions have gone against him. I mean, gradually, the uh, the Trump supporters are being let down gradually. Maybe they want to get excited about the general idea that fraud could happen, that there was motive and opportunity, and that uh, there's been a long history of cheating in elections and so forth. But they never really got it to anything specific that was happening in this election. And it just seems that the door has shut. Can't you accept that the door has shut? I think a lot of my readers are Trump supporters. I don't know why, but a lot of my readers are Trump supporters. And I know they hate to let it go. They hate to let their guy go. But, you know, look at the bright side, Trump supporters. He's going to run in 2024, maybe, probably, perhaps. So no sooner will he stop being president than he'll be candidate Trump rallying, uh, saying whatever he can say. And I think he'll get all the attention. The Biden isn't going to try to get much attention. We'll need somebody to do the theater of politics. And it's probably going to be uh, our old orange friend, Mr. Trump. 